This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. land of confusion to be sure thanks to our friends at genesis we're going to get on the phone now with our friend ryan teague beckwith rtb we like to call him he's up in nh now new hampshire that's where the action has moved sort of <laughs> i mean yeah, well. we thought fully we'd be there at this point and iowa was in the rearview mirror iowa uh still very much top of mind even with some news today uh ryan great to have you with us so what's going on iowa we just can't quit that can we If you thought the 2016 election never ended, get ready for the 2020 election to never end. Um, Essentially, today, um, uh, Bernie Sanders declared victory, uh, even though he and Pete Buttigieg remain within a tenth of a percent of each other. He said that's basically moot. Um, I'm the winner and, and moved on. Pete Buttigieg, of course, already declared that he was the winner when there were no results in. Right. Uh, so we have two winners. Um, and uh, there was a request from the National Democratic Party for the state party to re-canvas. That's essentially just recount um, what the, the votes were to make sure that they did them accurately. And the state party said uh, no, um, because only a campaign can ask for that, not the national party. So they do realize it's not Little League soccer, right, where everybody wins, um, <laughs> right? There actually is a winner. <laughs> so, I- you know, it's funny because normally in Iowa, even if there isn't necessarily a winner, there's usually a loser. Um, uh-huh. I'd point out, actually, that over the last 10 years, there has literally been not a single Iowa caucus where there was a contested race, not an incumbent president running um, as with Trump and Obama not a, a single time when there was a race where they didn't have a fight afterwards. Uh, Donald Trump said that Ted Cruz stole it. Right. Um, Rick Santorum and Mitt Romney had a big kerfuffle where Romney was the winner in election night. Then two weeks later, it was Santorum. And then Ron Paul ended up getting the delegates. Um, and uh, and Clinton and Sanders, of course, were, were very narrowly uh, within the margin there of each other. And, and, and Sanders complained at that time that, that it wasn't fair. So, so, we haven't had one in 10 years that turned out. Well, but normally there's a loser. At least. Right. Not a right. Loser. No so you start to, right. So you can whittle down the field. A little right. Bit. But so now, I mean, and, let, and let's right. name names here, Ryan. Like if it, if the results were sort of solidified, we might not be seeing Amy Klobuchar at least in New Hampshire. Right. I mean, like I said, uh, Amy Klobuchar, Deval Patrick, Michael Bennett, no one has dropped out since the Iowa caucuses, even though, uh, some of them did uh, terribly. Yeah. Um, now, some of them didn't expect to do terribly. Andrew Yang said all along he thought he would do better in New Hampshire than Iowa, but there's a report now in Politico that he's recently fired dozens of staffers uh, in light of his results there. So, um, but he's still running. So, uh, so nothing, as you said, the land of confusion, nothing is clearer than it was on Monday. Um, except that uh, Biden did worse than expected, right? And Buttigieg and Warren did better than expected, but it hasn't really affected uh, any of them in terms of like momentum or where we're going next. What's happening next? 
I feel like I'm, you know, thinking about growing up, you know, and you're like, have a party at the house and mom and dad come in. And you're like, oh, my God, because here you have Tom Perez, right? The Democratic, the DNC chairman. And he's saying, OK, enough is enough. We've had three chaotic days of figuring out these Democratic results. Let's, uh, you know, kind of do a re-canvas um, of the voting. Uh, Clean up so this mess, in. kids. Yeah, it's exactly like the party's over. Clean up the mess. So, I mean, what is what does that tell you? Yeah, this is less of like that kind of party and more like uh, that Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead movie where they just bury the babysitter <laughs> the party going all summer. Wow. As Jason would say, uh, Ryan did not see that coming. Didn't see that coming, but well, but well played. Well played, Ryan. Um, so I got to ask you. Amid, but, wait, wait, wait. Oh. but what does it mean? I mean, what, you know, in terms of for Perez to all of a sudden step in? Uh, I think that is um, a sort of a struggle between the Democratic establishment and the Iowa party, which wants to sort of say, okay, we've, you know, we've got it under control now. Things are fine. Um, let's, let's move on and, and kind of get this over with and pull the Band-Aid off. And the National Party, which wants to, you know, restore confidence uh, among the various people on Twitter who are alleging conspiracy theories and whatnot by saying, you know, let's, let's take a little bit more time here and and really make sure that we've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. I, I don't think either one of them uh, wins, really. Right. But mm. This, if functionally speaking, you're going to have a hard time convincing anyone who supports someone who didn't come out ahead in the final count that it wasn't somehow rigged against them. Right. Uh, those people are all over my Twitter mentions right now, and nothing you say will convince them otherwise. And that ultimately is the, the, the biggest loser here, is voter confidence. Right. All right, so only a minute left here, Ryan. But meanwhile, back in your hometown of Washington, the president acquitted by the Senate. He's watching all of this happen. He's going to be running against someone. He's having a field day. You know, um, yeah, well, field day is uh, he had quite a few events uh, this morning uh, at his field day. The, the one thing that I would point out is that almost immediately on caucus night, um, President Trump and his allies on Twitter were making hay of the fact that there were problems with the caucus and asserting that this was Democratic National Committee, um, which wasn't even involved, rigging the race once again against Bernie Sanders. If right. you recall from 2016, that was a big refrain of his. Um, the goal there is to depress turnout among Democrats by convincing uh, those that are Sanders supporters that Democrats um, you know, don't stand with them, don't like them and uh, to raise doubts about the legitimacy of elections, which is something that we have a lot. Right, and keep them at home. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Ryan Teague back with. Looking forward to your reporting from New Hampshire. He joined us on the phone from Manchester because at least more or less, the action moves to New Hampshire. A debate tomorrow night, a primary on Tuesday, the first primary of the season. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, the China death toll from the coronavirus sitting, I think the latest count I saw was about 563. Mainland China cases now topping 28,000. It's an ongoing story. It's also the cover of Business Week magazine this week, and we are looking at it from so many different angles. Our next guest, though, questions the efficacy of travel bans, which we have seen put into effect, uh, certainly in China and around the world. Let's bring in Dr. Jennifer Nuzo, who is senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center 
Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health on the phone from Baltimore. We should say uh, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported, of course, by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies, and of course, Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV. Um, Doctor, great to have you here with us. You question those travel bans. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, my main concern is that I, first of all, don't believe that they're going to be effective in keeping the virus out of our country. Um, What we have seen is that this virus is just moving uh, too quickly and too silently for us to really know where in the world it's spreading. And I believe that singling out China um, for these bans is essentially um, putting a penalty on them for uh, reporting cases. I think that sends a bad message to the rest of the world, and particularly countries who haven't yet, yet reported cases. And I'm also worried about um, all of the work that needs to be done here in the U.S. and um, believe that these uh, bans and the quarantines that they're also implementing along with them uh, will distract from the important work that I think we need to do here, uh, because I do believe that we will eventually see cases here, and I think we should be putting our efforts into planning for those. And Dr. Nuzzo, tell us what sort of planning we should be doing, especially here stateside, because the more that we hear about essentially containment and bans, and I think this is part of your point, the more candidly relaxed people get about this. I mean, we're looking, you know, we look through uh, a market lens at all of these things and we see a stock market, you know, continuing to hit records, even in the face of what seems like a very scary situation. So what should we be doing? Well, increasingly to me, this situation is looking a lot like uh, the 2009 influenza pandemic, where Mm -hmm. we saw that the virus could spread around the globe quite quickly. Um, If that hasn't happened already, and we're actually not looking for cases in the way that um, we would need to in order to assess that, but if that hasn't happened, then it will, in my view, likely happen. Um, And so what that will mean then is that we will have to put a lot of effort here in the U.S. in terms of um, trying to protect those people who might be at risk of severe illness and death. Although this virus is spreading quickly, I continue to be encouraged by the fact that, um, you know, the the number of deaths aren't climbing faster, and also the number of cases that are being reported outside of China um, have generally been quite mild. So I think, uh, you know, although we should expect larger spread of this virus in other countries um, in terms of what the the concerns are, uh, you know, really I think that will make us have to shift our attention to protecting those who are most vulnerable uh, from this virus. Dr. Nezzo, um, the cover story of the magazine, Bloomberg Business Week magazine, is all about the virus, understandably so, since it's certainly been so much um, that we've been talking about this week and really impacts uh, potentially so many, uh, and we've he- heard from companies talking about the impact on them as well. But I do wonder about if we need to be start thinking about the next virus so that we are in better shape to deal with it, whether it's through some kind of vaccine or some kind of treatment, and also really get at what they call, I think, is it the wet markets? Yes. You know, where all this live food um, and animal food is sold uh, in some of these developing uh, economies, certainly we're seeing it in China, that cause these types of viruses that cause so many problems. So, you know, kind of what's, what is it that we should be thinking about so that we don't get into this situation again? Yeah, so I think that we should be thinking ahead and thinking about um, not just this virus, but the next one and what sort of tools we need. And uh, certainly we need more work done on the vaccine and uh, therapeutic front, um, you know, vaccines and medicines. We also need more work uh, urgently now on uh, diagnostic tools so that doctors and nurses can tell who has the virus and who doesn't. And it would be helpful if those tools, uh, you know, don't have to be started from scratch every time we find a new virus. 
in terms of the wet markets, it's a little bit of a tricky situation because we don't fully know what the contribution of the wet markets are in this particular outbreak. Uh, certainly, they potentially could be points of risk, but um, as more evidence is coming out, we're not really sure if um, those initial cases that were reportedly tied to the wet market, if that were now that we know that the virus can spread between people and maybe it was just that was a cluster of people who worked with each other who spread the virus to each other. All right. Well, we really appreciate this thought-provoking, uh, to say the least. And there's a great piece uh, that Dr. Nuzzo wrote in the Washington Post uh, that outlines of this published earlier this week. We'll put it out on Twitter. Uh, an interesting take and, again, very evocative uh, and reminiscent of the cover story that is coming out in Bloomberg Business Week this week. Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. And as you can probably tell by the name, this is a school that is supported by Mike Bloomberg, who is the founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Oh, dancing in the dark is one thing. This part of the dark web, whoa, as Carol Master totally might say. Up. This is one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg. And I have to say, it's a story that once you start reading it, you can't stop. It's a first-person account of how one man who was in our studio essentially tried to ransomware his boss. Yes, everything you heard me say is true. This was all sanctioned. And it was okay to do it. There were lawyers involved. Lawyers the well. boss was, uh, was aware of all this. Drake Bennett was the perp. He is projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg Business Week. He's here with Joel Weber, the editor of the Bloomberg editor of Bloomberg Business Week, not the boss who got ransomed. But I'm uh, watching my words very. <laughs> let, let me tell you, he uh, he was very friendly to Drake when uh, they both came into our studio. So Drake, give us the backstory here. How did you even get this idea? Well, you've seen this giant increase in these ransomware attacks over the past several years. This is something that started out as something that would attack, you know, individual users and lock up their photos on their computer. And then it's just gotten more and more ambitious to where you're having these cities, these giant multinational corporations attacked. Hospitals. Hospitals, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I started out just looking into why you're seeing this increase. And part of what I realized is that the, the business models changed. And so you, it, it's sort of like you have software as a service. You have these giant sort of companies like Salesforce. There's a sort of criminal underground version of this, and it's actually called ransomware as a service or RAS. And you can be pretty clueless and sign up for one of these services, and you not only get the ransomware, but you get kind of customer service and assistance in, in launching your sort of uh, dastardly attack. So I decided the best way to learn about this would actually be to, to try it. Uh, I do want to bring one quick headline to you. Johnson & Johnson agreeing to pay $750 million, a settlement in that talc case we've been following very closely. We'll bring you more details. Are you seeing any uh, stock reaction? A little bit. It just went down about um, a third, of, uh, actually about two-tenths of a percent, but we did see it drop on that news. But I think there was also talk of damages being a lot yes, higher. Exactly. So we'll yeah, exactly. $750 million seems like a lot, but then again, I feel like we had been talking in the billions, billions. Uh, if I exactly. remember correctly. So, Drake, there's this line in here that I love. Uh, as a journalist, I've spent years writing about people who do things that, if I, if if called upon, I couldn't do myself. Yet here was a chance, my chance to be the man in the arena, right? That's so, right. so you entered the dark web, a place that I've never gone. What was that like? It was. Uh, I mean, basically the dark. I mean, so just 
to because I didn't really know what the dark web was before I started the story. That it, it's a part of the internet that's basically been configured in such a way that it's not accessible to normal web browsers. You have to get these special like a Tor uh, anonymizing browser to go, and it's a lot of these chat rooms and paste bins and places where people talk about and buy and sell um, illegal things. And a lot of the illegal things involve cybercrime and software and these software services. Uh, and it's an interesting mix of people who uh, are for real and people who are kind of scamming other scammers. Like it's a little bit like the, you know, the whatever that cantina in Star Wars is. You're just totally. kind of this, you're just, just like, <laughs> Moss Eisley. Like this, yes. The Moss wild, Eisley. wild west, right? Yeah. On steroids. And so what were you setting out to do to pour Max. I was going to say unsuspecting, but very much suspecting <laughs> he Max was suspecting, right? Right, because to make sure it was not illegal, uh, I needed to make sure that my victim was not had given me uh, permission to do this. So we agreed that I would uh, lock up. So the the whole the the ransomware business model is basically you get this malicious software on someone's machine, you deploy it, you get them to open it so that it locks up all the encrypts all their data, so it's useless, and then you. Uh, tell them they need to pay you a certain amount of money, usually in Bitcoin, to unlock it. So that was the basic idea. I, I managed to indeed procure some uh, ransomware. It turned out, I discovered, to not be like particularly well-built ransomware. Uh, fortunately, I had the assistance of an extremely smart cybersecurity researcher who kind of like fixed it for me. But I, I did indeed sort of send Max this email that uh, he clicked on the attachment for. It scrambled all his files. How much money did you get? I got $100 in Bitcoin. Did you give it back? I, I did give it back. Okay. It's, I, I eventually gave it back, yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. But it was pretty easy. It, it was like. easy, exactly. Well, that's exactly. what scares me. Yeah. Because, it, sorry, no offense, if you could figure this out, there's some other people who could figure this <laughs> wow. out. And it looks like, yeah. it, once yeah. you realize how easy this is, it's just like chaos. Yeah, chaos I mean, it's right. going to ensue here. I mean, I think it's like a lot of industries. There's been like a de-skilling, right? Like software has eaten everything, even, you know, hacking. So you can if you can pay and it's a not a lot of money for these services you can you know have a little cybercrime business and and wreak some havoc which right. is one of those things like from a business standpoint man if you brought a hospital to a standstill or a school or a city right I mean, yeah. or big company, big yeah. companies, I mean, like big companies. Have hit you by these things. you yeah. pay now. Right. So there's the, and nobody yeah. wants to talk about it is right. the other part because it's like, you know, because it's, I don't want to happen security. again. Yeah. Right. And it questions your security. So it's this, this yeah. a problem. Well, does it happen a lot more than we realize? Yes, it okay. almost certainly does because, you know, and, and, you know, so these cities and municipal municipalities are increasingly being targeted, but part of the reason you hear about them is they actually have to report it. Whereas a lot of these, um, big uh, global corporations will be pretty coy about whether they've paid the ransom or not because they um, and the, even the FBI's advice on it is a little bit there they, they don't recommend that people pay the ransom but they kind of like admit that sometimes <laughs> you, you need to right back. because yeah. if if you're some you know like manufacturing company where you just got you, yeah you right? just got it yeah. comes well, part of doing business yeah. and one of the things you it seems like you learned was that this is constantly evolving constantly changing even as you were able to sort of anonymously on their end engage people who do this sorts of things they basically were like even the stuff you yeah. were using right. was way outdated we have bro. a new version yeah, yeah it's better you know and it's like it's it's part of the the kind of weird dark twin of the legitimate software world aspect of this because these these malware these ransomware variants will like keep sending out updates so it's like there's this sort of arms race between the antivirus companies and the malware coders so what takeaways do you have from having spent 
months kind of going down this little hole. Well, there's always a plan B if journalism doesn't work out. Um, and, and Max, watch out. Right. Jill, watch out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think there are things you can do to, to make yourself a harder target for these sorts of attacks. You know, you should be, you know, updating your software. You should, you should be patching things. You know, while I was doing this, I actually got the Bloomberg. I had to do my, like, Bloomberg cybersecurity training. And the stuff in there that I might have rolled my eyes at, you know, a few months before, like, just to being a little bit more aware about clicking on emails. Uh, is and is that usually what you have to do to kind of set that this up? That is kind of the dominant yeah. business model now is the phishing email. And it's, it also it allows – it. part of the reason this is such an easy kind of scalable crime is that you can send out like thousands of these phishing emails, and if someone clicks on it, then you're into that system yeah. and you can right. go figure out what to do with it. My, yeah. take, my takeaway was I just need a little bit of Bitcoin just in case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Keeps exactly. Them on deposit. In, in case yeah. Drake is like, I really didn't like my performance evaluation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. All right. Yeah. Drake wow. Bennett, great, great story. Thank you so much. Nice Projects and investigations reporter, author of one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg today. Check it out. Our thanks to, to Joel Weber. Everything will always be all right. Uh, yes, indeed. As long as folks are out there shopping, uh, we certainly just heard from our economics roundtable uh, how that will keep the cons- uh, not the consumer but the economy going overall. Meantime, though, as we see the consumer economy continuing to kind of shrug off so many macro issues that are out there, including overall kind of industry woes that we're seeing uh, as we hear from various CEOs, Brooke Sutherland. Uh, writes about this specifically. She's our deals and industrials columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. She's in our Bloomberg uh, Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. And it is kind of interesting, Brooke, we talk about kind of what feels like a dichotomy of some companies coming out with some real problems, right? Um, Specifically in the manufacturing sector. um, And that is certainly separated from what we're seeing where consumers seem like everything's okay. Right. And I think there's a couple of different things behind that. I mean, the first you have to remember that the tariffs that we did see, first it was the broad, U.S. steel and aluminum tariffs on foreign metals, and then it was the initial $250 billion of Chinese goods, and those were mostly manufacturing-related products. Now, consumer goods did start to get dragged into it towards the end there, but Trump ultimately watered down those tariffs, and then he rescinded uh, you know, a big portion of what would have been the most painful part of that as part of this U.S.-China trade deal. But the most crippling for manufacturers has really been the uncertainty, yeah. that it's just not really clear when tariffs are coming, when they're going to be pulled back and nobody is really willing to spend a lot of money on very expensive equipment in that type of environment. And that can be really crippling. It does not necessarily have the same impact on consumers. If I don't necessarily see the price going up for things that I want to buy, I'm not going to change the way that I'm purchasing. Right. And so what are some of the companies that you're looking at here? Because there are some very well-known names that we talk to you about all the time who you bring up again. And man, they're just struggling. They can't catch a break. They are. And we're sort of through the bulk of uh, industrial earnings. Their consumer companies are still to come, but industrial companies have not really laid out a particularly bright 2020. They're still looking at a pretty challenged, sluggish growth environment, particularly in the first half of the year. There's some optimism that we might see a recovery in the back half of the year, but I always get really nervous when companies are banking on back-end recoveries. It does not tend to play out like that. Just wait. Just wait wait. six months. Um, 
it, it does not usually play out like that, and we are in an election year. There's a lot of different variables happening here, but some of the companies that have been, you know, downbeat and, and tend to be sort of bellwethers are 3M, yeah. uh, Caterpillar, of course. Its guidance was not particularly yeah. impressive for 2020, calling for another year of declining revenue. And of course, those two companies are also very exposed to China and what's happening with the coronavirus. Well, and what's interesting, right, because we do talk so much about how important to keep the U.S. economy in particular going is that consumers need to keep out spe- keep spending. And they will do that if they feel confident about their jobs, maybe right. they're getting wage increases. And what I love about your story is it reminds us that despite hearing woes, whether it's from a 3M or a Caterpillar or a CSX, that's kind of your manufacturing part of the economy, which is a smaller portion of our economy overall. And that's why it's not necessarily hitting really kind of the the consumer spending base at large. It is a much smaller portion of the economy than it's historically been. It's about 11% of third quarter GDP. And Bloomberg News did a great analysis that that is the lowest level in data going back to 1947. So it is not as much of a swing factor as it used to be. But the other thing is that you really haven't seen mass layoffs from the manufacturers. As much as they've been struggling, it's been a moderate uh, downturn, I want to say. And because it wasn't, typically when you see slumps, it's because companies overinvested. They spent too much in one direction. You know, we saw that with housing, of course, with the right. great financial crisis. And then there was an industrial recession in 2015 and 2016 tied to oil prices. Oil prices had run too hot. Companies spent way too much money on equipment um, and drilling and excavating. And that all came back to bite. We didn't really have that phenomenon here. There's nowhere where companies yeah. have spent too much money and they need to cut the excess. And there's sort of this hope that if we did get a trade deal, things would turn around really quickly. So nobody wanted to be caught flat-footed. The labor market is tight. You well, don't- that, I, can I just jump in? I love what you said in your story about United Technologies. You know, with Boeing's woes, whether United Technologies might have to lay off workers as a result, right? Because it's part of the supply chain there. And they're not going to let go of workers, right? Because they're concerned about, because it's such a tight labor force, they don't want to be without workers for when they need them. Right. Because it's, it's very difficult to ramp your supply chain back up if you let it go cold and they don't they need the employees boeing is also not laying off people because they need to be able to pivot and turn back to production once this thing finally does get approved to go back into the air now i will say united and technologies and boeing are in a little bit better position to weather this we did see spirit aerosystem coming out with pretty significant job cuts but that company gets more than 50 percent of its revenue from the 737 max so to not have anything coming in on that front for a quarter is It's tough. (laughs) So 30 seconds, Brooke, how are you looking at coronavirus amid all of this? You know, it's interesting. I think it might actually hit the consumer companies harder Mm. initially. Um, And that's sort of a difference from the trade war. But if you think about it, if I had a trip to Macau or I was going to take a cruise or I was going to go to Starbucks, I'm not going to do that anymore if I canceled those plans because of the coronavirus. So that's money that these consumer companies are not necessarily getting back. Now, they may, of course, see a return of people in the future, maybe less so in some of these travel-related industries. But you'll never get that lost income or revenues or whatever. Whereas, Manufacturers, if you have a factory shut down, I mean, presumably your customers still need those parts, right. and that could Eventually. come back yeah. later on in the year. We have so. to ramp up perhaps later on. Um, great story. Um, thank you so much. Thank Check you. it out at Bloomberg.com uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal, and it's also in the magazine this week, which is hitting newsstands as we speak. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive.
Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everyone. It is time for the drive to the close. Just got about uh, 11 minutes left in today's trading day. And we've been bouncing around a little bit. We're definitely well off our lows of this session uh, and just off our highs. So up about three-tenths of a percent on both the S&P and the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Excuse me. NASDAQ up about six-tenths of a percent. And let's not forget that we do have um, some big earnings coming after the uh, closing bell. Take two interactive we'll break that down uber also coming in after the closing bell so some of the numbers we'll be looking at right we'll be talking about all that in just a few minutes first let's bring in david deets president and chief investment strategist out at point view wealth management looking after about seven billion dollars he joins us on the phone from lovely bucolic summit new jersey uh how are you david doing fine jason thank you so much all right. So what do you like in a market like this where we've got coronavirus, we've got impeachment, we've got the Democrats not figuring out who they who the winner is of a caucus that happened almost 72 hours ago? Uh, where do you go? Well, so I think we have seen a continuation of the great results in 2019 into 2020. But there was a uh, big gut check, of course, with the coronavirus. But it does seem that the number of cases are deaccelerating. There's rumors of some vaccines on the way. Of course, very forceful counter response in terms of uh, the People's Bank of China injecting more monetary reserves into the system, lowering tariffs. And so it seems like that problem has gotten under control. Meanwhile, uh, investors here are looking at some very nice economic numbers. So, for example, on Monday we heard that the manufacturing index is back into expansion territory. ADP gave us an early read perhaps on tomorrow's jobs report with uh, um, excellent jobs numbers creations. And, of course, um, the weekly jobless claims numbers came in at a multi-month low yesterday. All that sets up well for a pretty good jobs report tomorrow. Let's see. All right. So I love some of the stats that you sent along before um, joining us. And that is, uh, you f you point out that if you know, we keep talking about valuations, right? And everybody's saying the market's getting so expensive. But I feel like we've been having that conversation a lot over the past 12 months. But you point out, David, that um, while everybody does fret about valuations, you would have already made about 9% this year by buying the most expensive 20% <laughs> of stocks and shorting the cheapest 20%. So what does that tell you? <laughs> well, it, I think there is some... Uh, concern about the health of the global economy. That's keeping a lid down on interest rates. That's keeping a lid on commodity prices. Many of those factors are responsible for the lagging performance of value stocks. So I think a lot of investors are going with the so-called secular winners. Some of the tech stocks, which are increasing productivity for everyone worldwide that people feel they have to employ in their businesses, buy for their personal use without regard to the latest economic figures. And that trend seems to have continued uh, this year. Of course, growth um, stocks have higher valuations, but with the ultra low interest rates, I think people and investors are giving those higher valuations the past so far. All right, David, you know we love talking names. And one name I wanted to ask you about is Kellogg. That stock is one of your worst performers in the S&P today. Weak forecast, disappointed investors. Why do you like that one? 
so Kellogg, of course, is 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 under pressure in terms of the uh, breakfast cereals and so forth. Fewer people are having that traditional cold cereal breakfast. Having said that, they are moving their brands more into the the, the snack and go and, and things like that. And so we like that movement. They are also redoubling their efforts to make their products healthier, or at least appear healthier. You got reasonable valuations. You got a much above average dividend. So in case there's further volatility up ahead that uh, uh, the forces of a weak global economy continue to to perhaps grow stronger, a name like Kellogg, I think, can carry your portfolio through the day. How, How patient, though, do we need to be, David, as an investor, as they kind of make the transition to providing a product that really consumers now want to buy, right? We're really not the cereal generation, uh, I think, safe to say that folks are. I like are, cereal. Yeah. Do you eat it all the time? Not all the time. Okay. Well, you know, I think it's, a, you know, obviously you want a, a diversified portfolio. You want some uh, companies that are going to do very, very well with a stellar economy and others that are going to give you uh, a little bit of ballast if things slow down. You know, the Kellogg with a 3% plus dividend, of course, compare that with the 10-year treasury, about yeah. 1.65. So people say, can I be in the stock market? I say, well, with a company like Kellogg, how can you afford not to be? Your, your yield, your income is almost double historically they've increased that dividend anywhere from 5 to 10%. Really, where are you going to be better off in the next 10 years? But I always do wonder with the dividend name, help me out here, um, because, yeah, I understand that dividend play, right? 3.6%, that's pretty nice on Kellogg. Stock's down about 7 almost 8%, though. So what's the balance between a great dividend versus a stock that's going down? Well, <laughs> I mean, there's no question about it, but we, we, we do feel the expectations had been just a, a tad on the high side for Kellogg. So, you know, in the wake of the slight earnings disappointment, this is something they would jump on board with. And, of course, they also have great international opportunities. They continue to take these brands from the domestic market, take them to, not only to Europe and Japan, but also to those faster-growing emerging markets. Can we also just talk to you about Gilead, yes, right? Good. Because I think everyone's, you know, the expectation that maybe there's a vaccine to help with the virus. Um, this has not been an easy one, though, to own over the last year or so because it bounces around a lot. Over the last 20 years, it's one of, been one of our biggest winners, but there's no question about it. It has faced headwinds because of patent expirations on some of their drugs. People are looking for it to come up with the next big acquisition, the next big drug. Um, I don't think it's going to be the vaccines, even though they seem to be in the leader in terms of developing something for the coronavirus. It does reflect well on the, the, the strength and energy of the research and development pipeline. But we do feel that Gilead historically has been able to come up with some of the big winners in terms of HIV, in terms of uh, vaccination and so forth. We think it can do it again. And again, you know, you got a, a 4% plus dividend that it can carry you through while you're patient. All right. 30 seconds. Give us a case for United Airlines. Well, United Airlines was, has been hit extremely hard because of the coronavirus. You know, the idea is you're not going to fly to Asia, you're not right. going to fly, you're not going to want to do anything. Having said that, what we love about United Airlines, uh, to a shareholder's delight, but perhaps not to a passenger, is their concentration at the various hubs, whether that be Chicago, Newark, Denver, that allows them to control a lot of the flights, charge above average uh, fares, that gives them the better profit margins, and also I think there's long-term secular or tailwinds for more people taking to the airs, avoiding the nasty traffic, and taking advantage of uh, travel opportunities. 
All right, we're going to leave it there. David Deeds, always good to catch up with you. President and Chief Investment Strategist for Point View Wealth Management. Love talking names with him because he comes in hot. I like it. Yeah. He likes those names. Well, it's fun to kick around the specifics, right? Totally, especially names that are moving in the market like those are. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.